may be seated. Have you ever walked into a situation where as soon as you walk in, you evaluate what you see and your reaction is, nope, not going to do it. Turn around and walk away. I came across a few of those this week. I saw this picture of someone going to go brush their teeth and on their toothbrush rests this demon creature. Uh, and I'm all about dental hygiene. I brush my teeth upwards of twice a week, and so I'm for it. But in this situation, I think I would skip it. In fact, I think I would burn my whole house down and just start over. Or imagine you're driving down a gravel road and you come across this sign, Country Fair at the Shady Meth Church. Nope, not going to do it. Not going. Or you get invited to a friend's house, and as you're walking up, you see whatever this is hanging out at their front door. Nope. I don't care what you invited me over to do. I'm not getting eaten by a dragon. I don't know what that is. It's probably in Florida, and so I'm not, I'm just going to avoid it. Or you're going for a walk, and you come across this sign. Beware of falling snakes. All of Jeff Bezos' billions could be on the other side of that sign, and I'm not going there. I don't need snakes falling from the sky on my head. It is not worth it. And these situations are outlandish, but the reason that we would respond that way is because they generate a sense of fear in us. We get afraid. They force us to alter our behavior, and fear can be a positive thing, like in the situations that we've just looked at. We make decisions informed by our fear that help us avoid the obvious danger. But fear can be a very negative thing as well. In our fear, we make irrational decisions based upon limited data and failing to remember key details about reality. And as I've studied this passage, I believe that both of these kinds of fear are on full display. Fear is an incredibly common emotion. We've all felt it, some of us even today. Some of you were probably even afraid to come here this morning. And some people are scared of silly things like clowns or mice or about being honest about whether or not Beyonce is any good. But underneath all of our silly fears, we have some deep-rooted fears that shape us, that inform how we act. Fears like we will make all of the same mistakes that our parents made. Or fears that we'll end up totally alone. Or fears that everyone will think that I'm a fraud. Or find out that I'm a fraud. These are real deep fears. And in the scriptures we see two different categories of fear. First category we see is godly fear. We see godly fear. This is the kind of fear that is life-giving, the kind that protects us. Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children have a refuge. Proverbs 19, 23, The fear of the Lord leads to life. One will sleep at night without danger. Or Psalm 112, verse 1, Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. With godly fear, there is confidence and life and joy and comfort. And this type of fear 
when we trust the Lord in it, helps us stand up against all of our other fears. The second category we see, though, is worldly fear. We see worldly fear. And this type of fear is very closely, if not exactly the same as anxiety. This type of worldly fear. It's all about our desire for control. We want to be in control of results and circumstances. Whether it's a fear of losing everything we value, like our family, our friends, our job, our reputation, or a fear of what might or could happen. Not even what will, but what might. We create impossible scenarios in our minds, in our fear. When we do this, what we're doing is we're failing to account for who God is, what he has promised, and what he has done for us. But the Lord tells us in Isaiah 41, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. So a big idea here is that in the absence of the light of God, we see all sorts of monsters in the darkness of our own hearts. Monsters of our own creation because of our own anxious fears. So for the rest of our time, I want to look at three things. I want to look at Abraham's fear, Abimelech's fear, and the grace of God. First, Abraham's fear. Abraham seemed to be walking into a situation in which he wanted to say no because he was gripped with worldly fear. Why? Why was Abraham so afraid? I think the passage informs us with probably three reasons for fear. Cause for fear number one was King Abimelech himself. It says, from where Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, while he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. Now I'd like to give you a lot of background and helpful information about King Abimelech. Uh, but Abimelech is just a generic name with the combination of the Hebrew words father and king. So when you are a young man in Philistine and line for the throne, your name means my father is king. And when you become king later, you become king father. That's about all the details we have about Abimelech. It was a very common name among the kings of the Philistines. But we know about the Philistines. We know about how they were. We know that they were polytheistic. They had a lot of gods. They worshipped idols. They were pagan cultures. We know that Abimelech, like many other kings in the area, had a harem of women. He liked to collect women for it. And Abraham, much like he did in Egypt, knew that he had a beautiful wife and knew that the king would do anything it took, including killing him, to bring her in. And we know that these kinds of cultures did not respond well to aliens and outsiders who entered into their land as strangers. So weighing all of this, Abraham says about Abimelech, I thought, there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Now all of that data in and of itself is not irrational. He could read the culture around him and probably make a somewhat informed conclusion about what he was entering. But then we add in cause for fear number two, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Abraham just watched the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed for their idolatry and their abhorrent sin against God. And if I'm Abraham and I'm leaving an area that just got destroyed because of idolatry, because of sin, because it was not honoring the Lord, and I walk into another country where that, or city where that is not the case as well, I would probably think if God did that there, why wouldn't he do it here? So Abraham reads the room, as it were, and enters self-preservation mode. It seems as if he's importing his past experience into his current circumstances. Before he's really evaluated it, he's importing his past into his present. And in doing so, it leads him to cause for fear number three, his forgetfulness. He's failing to remember some key truths. And seeing the perceived threat in front of him, Abraham fails to remember what God has done for him up to this point. He goes into a spiral of self-preservation. And we've been studying the life of Abraham for a while now, so I think it's probably a good idea, right before Isaac is born, to give ourselves a refresher on the life of Abraham so that we can remember what Abraham didn't. There's a few things that Abraham fails to remember. First is he fails to remember that God called him. God called him. Abraham lived much of his life in a pagan, polytheistic, idolatrous, God-hating culture. In no context for the God of the universe. But God broke into Abraham's life and calls him out of Ur to go to the land that he will give him. And Abraham goes. He travels to Canaan where God makes his initial promise to turn Abraham into a great nation. So God called him special out of all the peoples of the earth. He also fails to remember that God has preserved him. When a famine strikes the land, it forces Abraham and his family into Egypt, where Abraham, for the first time, lies about who Sarah is, saying that she is his sister and not his wife for his own protection. His concern is that he will be killed. He has no concern for Sarah. But God intervenes. He saves Abraham, saves Sarah. And then after leaving Egypt, Abraham and Lot separate because of the conflict among their people. There is a conflict that exists between Abraham's people and Lot's people. So Abraham says, Lot, take whatever land you want. Lot selfishly chooses the more fertile-looking land, leaving Abraham the more destitute-looking land. When Abraham goes into it, God provides and preserves him. And then God doubles down on his promise to give the land of Canaan to Abram and his descendants. And in Genesis 15, God makes an unbelievable covenant with Abraham, which is the major missing detail in Abraham's thinking. It's the covenant that has already been made with him. We read in Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This covenant that God makes with Abraham is incredible, and there are so many heavy details associated with it. 
So we want to unpack that. God has just made this covenant with Abraham. O. Palmer Robertson helpfully defines covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So a bond is an oath-bound commitment. You are binding yourself when you make a covenant promise to someone or something else. Hebrews 16 tells us, or 6.13 rather, tells us that God swore by himself in the covenant with Abraham. That the, so God swore by himself. There was no higher power that God could have appealed to. So he bound himself up in himself when he made this covenant promise to Abraham. And it's a bond in blood, which tells us that a covenant is a life and death commitment. And the ritual of covenant making would have been very common in ancient Near Eastern culture. In the ancient Near East, when an overlord conquered a new people, he would gather all of these newly conquered people outside of the city gates. He would slaughter animals and line them up along the road leading into the city. This overlord would stand before the people and say, if you promise to be loyal to me, worship me, pay me taxes, give me sons for my army, then I will give you protection, an economic network, courts. But if you don't, you will be just like these animals. And this newly conquered people would be forced to walk in, back into their own city between these dead animals, knowing what their fate would be should they fail to honor their new conqueror. So in Genesis 15, when God slaughters the animals, Abraham has some idea about what's going to happen. And if you're Abraham in the situation, you would recognize that you are not the God of the universe. You are not the one in control here. So you will be the one walking through these animals, putting the penalty of death on yourself if you fail to meet the requirements of God's covenant. But that's not what happens. God walks through the animals. God puts the penalty of death upon himself and has bound himself up within himself should he fail to keep his promise. Finally, it's sovereignly administered, meaning that God sets the terms. There's no room for bargaining. You cannot negotiate with the God of the universe. And there are some key differences between the covenants made with Adam and Noah before this, and the covenant made with Abraham. I think the grammar gives it away. Genesis 1.28, one of the conditions of the covenant, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. To Noah, Genesis 9, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. In these cases, there is an imperative given to each of the recipients of the covenant. They are to act as God has commanded, to be fruitful and multiply. The language changes with Abraham. God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will set up my covenant. I will multiply you greatly. I will make you extremely fruitful. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and your future offspring. And I will give you the land. See the difference? The commands of Genesis 1 and 9 turn into promises in Genesis 12 
and following. God promises to make Abraham fruitful, to make him multiply, to give him the land, to turn him into a great nation. God means to use the redeemed line of Abraham to fulfill his creation purposes. And these are incredible promises. But do you realize that in the new covenant, God has said he will do many things for you? He has given us incredible promises like that we are new creations. That the old us has passed, that the, the old sinful ways that we carried around with us are gone. We are a new creation in Christ. Or that he has given us a spirit of power, which is his Holy Spirit, which dwells in us. And Jesus in John 10 promises that anybody who belongs to him, he will hold them fast and never let them go. These are incredible promises. And it's easy for us to read about Abraham and while looking in the rearview mirror saying, what an idiot. What a dummy. How could he do this again? But when we face hard choices, difficult circumstances or temptations, don't we respond exactly the same way? Don't we give in to fear and fail to enter these situations in faith? We have these incredible promises, yet we operate like we don't, just like Abraham did, like our old self hasn't died, like we only need our own strength or that it is up to us to keep ourselves in Christ's possession. Right after Abraham gets this incredible covenant promise, he goes and sleeps with Hagar in an attempt to force the fulfillment of God's promise. He wanted to take control, so he acted in fear. And once again, he finds himself in a foreign land among an unfamiliar people, and he resorts to fear because he forgets about God's promise power. But as we continue reading the passage, it doesn't seem like that fear was warranted when we see how Abimelech responds to God. Let's look at Abimelech's fear. Starting in verse 3, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said, He is my brother? I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called his servants together and personally told them all these things, and the men were terrified. So here we see the difference between Abraham's worldly fear and Abimelech's godly fear. Abimelech and his household have a fear-driven response to their encounter with the Lord. When God confronts Abimelech and warns him of the consequences of keeping Sarah, his response is incredible. Backlit by the reality that Abimelech had no context for the God of Abraham, the God of the universe. He was polytheistic. But upon being confronted, he appeals to God for protection. 
He says, I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. He doesn't begin to argue and say, well, they said this and the deed is done. You're just one of several other gods, so get in line and I'll listen to you as soon as you tell me what I want to hear. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try and make excuses. He recognizes the power of God and appeals to it for his protection. When God explains the consequences of keeping Sarah or returning her to Abraham, what does he do? Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done these things to me that sh- you have done things to me that should never be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, What made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought, There is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. So Abimelech goes to Abraham to confront him about what has happened and in response to what God has told him. Abimelech hears from God, trusts him, and acts accordingly. And the contrasting fears between Abraham and Abimelech could not be more clear. Abimelech responds to the power of God. And in confronting Abraham, Abraham just lays all of his excuses bare. In worldly fear, he sought his own self-preservation, surrendered his wife. He said, I thought there was no fear of God in this place. Plus, she really is my sister, sort of. Abraham's response to the situation was built upon a judgment he made about Abimelech and his people with very little information and to the neglect of the promises of God for his life. But in godly fear, Abimelech returns Sarah to her husband and treats Abraham with incredible generosity. Now this certainly is not the main point, but there is a lesson for us to draw from here. It's easy to make assumptions about people and how they will respond to the gospel. I'm sure every single one of us have seen a group of people and thought, there is no way that if I go talk to them that they will respond positively to the message of the gospel. We make these judgments from a distance. We do that with our own family members. We think we know them so well that they will never respond. And when we do that, we're making assumptions just like Abraham. We fail to account for the power of God to break down the walls of their heart. The same power that broke down the high walls that we put up around our own hearts before we became Christians. If you were anything like me growing up, which is most people, you had high walls around your heart. And there were probably many people that looked at you and thought, they're helpless. They don't, they won't respond But if you're a Christian, aren't you glad that somebody decided to share the gospel with you? That they decided to trust in the power of God and his word? So we need not make these assumptions about people. What we need to appreciate in this passage is the way that God shows incredible grace in the midst of Abraham's deception and his cowardice. So end, let's look at the grace of God. Grace of God is on display in... uh, myriad of ways, so many different ways. 
I'm gonna look at two. First is the dream. God approached Abimelech in a dream. Now, could God have gone to Abraham and said, hey, guy, remember all these promises that I made to you? Remember how I said I was going to do all of these things? Go and get your wife, make things right, and move on. Yes, he could have done that. But by using Abimelech, God shows Abraham incredible grace. Incredible grace. God spoke to Abimelech in a dream to warn him about the evil in his home. Not an evil that Abimelech invited, but was thrust upon him by another person's deception. So God warns him to protect Abimelech and his household and Abraham and Sarah so that he can act on his covenant promise. Next, we see the grace of God on display in Abimelech's offering to Abraham. Abimelech would have had every right to be angry with Abraham and cast him out, just like Pharaoh did. I mean, he approaches him and says, what have you done? What did I do to you? Why would you do this to me and my people? Take your wife and get out of here. But that's not what he does. Verse 14, then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves, gave them to Abraham and returned his wife, Sarah, to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I am giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. What a response to the evil that Abraham has thrusted upon him. Just an outstanding generosity. Abimelech gives him sheep and oxen and servants. What's crazier, though, is he gives him land. He says, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. What this means is that Abraham is no longer an alien or stranger in Gerar, but now he is a resident. He can move about the city freely with no fear of consequences. And he gave him a thousand pieces of silver. It's representative of the dowry for a bride, but in that day, it was 50 pieces of silver. So Abimelech offers 20 times the standard dowry for a bride. And this was a very public display of Abimelech's affirmation of Sarah's dignity and that he had not acted inappropriately toward her. God's grace is on full display here in Abraham, receiving outrageous benefits despite his deception. And don't we receive outrageous benefits despite our own sin? Don't we receive so many good things from the Lord despite our lack of deserving it because of the goodness of God shown to us in Christ? So what do we do? How do we walk away from this passage? Two points of application. Trust in the promises of God. First, we have to trust the promises of God that he has made to us. Second Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Scripture is full 
of these great and precious promises. So what should we do with them? Well, dwell on them. Meditating on Scripture is something that so many Christians struggle with. But when you come across a promise, dwell on it. Read it over and over and over again. Write it down. Not in a place that you're going to set it aside and forget it, but write it down in a place where you can recall it when you need it. Memorize it. Pray the promises of God. Commit them to mind and memory as you pray them to the Lord. Carry them with you. If you write it down, you might as well write it on something you can carry in your pocket. So carry the promises of God with you. So that in the moments of trial and temptation and struggle, the Holy Spirit will draw these promises up out of the well of your heart and give you peace and comfort through them. A couple of my favorite promises that I have carried with me over the years are 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear and love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete love. And I grew up in a very unstable home environment. Divorced parents, never certain how they're going to respond to anything that I said or did. And when I became a Christian at 15 years old, this is one of the first promises I came across that really jumped off the pages of Scripture and into my heart. That there would be no worldly fear in the love of Christ. That my fear could be driven out by the love of Christ. And I've carried that promise with me for the last 20 years. It's not like I think about it every second of every day, but there are many, many moments that the Lord draws this promise up out of the well of my heart. Or Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. We all want to be like Christ. At least we ought to. We want to be conformed into the image of Christ. We want to reach the goal that God has called us to. And when we make efforts in our own strength, and we fail. It's discouraging. But when we remember that we have been taken hold of by Christ, that he will hold us and complete this work in us, it allows us to make our efforts in a whole new way. So we need to trust the promises of God. Second thing we need to do is we need to cultivate a fear of God. Michael Reeves says that fear of God is a matter of the heart's deepest inclination. Fear of God is a matter of the heart's deepest inclinations. So if you're a Christian, what is the deepest inclination of your heart? How often do you remember what you were saved from? How often do you remember what it cost? It cost the God of the universe to take on human flesh, to dwell among us, to live a life of perfect obedience, and then go to the cross and suffer under the full weight of the wrath of God for your sin and for mine. That it costs Jesus his life. And when we think about that cost, it ought to cultivate a fear of God in us. And we need to remember what he asked of us. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of promises 
in the scriptures. And there are also many commands that we are given to obey. Not because it earns our righteousness or our salvation, but because they conform us into the image of God. That when we become new creations, we are given a new heart and the Holy Spirit in order to obey the commands of God. Martin Luther says, to fulfill the law, however, is to do its works with pleasures and love, put into the heart by the Holy Spirit, given by faith in Christ, which, which comes through God's word. So as we dwell on God's word, we remember what he has asked of us and what it costs him to save us. As Christians, that ought to cultivate a fear of God in our hearts. But if you're not a Christian and you're in here, I want to ask you, do you realize your position before God? If you're not a Christian, there more than likely is very little fear of God in your heart. And like many, you might think that the greatest problems in the world live outside of you. That there are systems and structures and other people and policies and politicians that are the problem. That that is the greatest evil out there. But that's not what scripture says. The greatest threat that you face in this life is you. You are your greatest threat. Your own sin, your own darkness reaps corruption. It earns you separation from God. But God does not desire that for you. God created you to know him and to be known by him, to live in his light and in his glory. So I encourage you, consider this passage in Romans 5 as you think about whether or not you know the Lord. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps, someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. Let's pray.